Good morning, Hallows Church. It's great to see you. Happy Easter. He is risen. Easter, Easter is really too marvelous for words. It really is, but uh, let's take a crack at it together this morning. I want to speak plainly this morning. I want to speak as plainly as I can. Uh, we find ourselves living in a time and a place where truth, where what is true seems at times confused and confusing. You hear more and more people these days talking about your truth or my truth and fewer and fewer people talking about, about the truth. You hear people saying things like, well, that may be true for you, but that's, that's not really true for me. Truth, for many people, has become a matter of personal preference. Your truth is whatever you decide and, and feel that it is. And this gets applied to religions too, right? Just, just choose whichever one works best for you. They're basically all the same anyway, aren't they? Christianity, oh right, that, that may be true for you, but that's, that's not really true for me. And I suppose in a sense, some truths are subjective. If I say pizza is my favorite food, I suppose that is my truth. You could say that's a subjective truth that is particular to me based on what I feel, so... So I get it at, at some level. But not all truth is like that, of course. Some things are either true or they are false, no matter what you may feel about them. Some things are objectively true. None of us want to go down to the bank to withdraw some money, money from our accounts, only to have the teller say, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't feel like you have enough money in your account today to do that. You say, I don't care how you feel, I know the money's in there. And you don't really want the bank teller to look up at you and say, well, that may be true for you, but that's not really true for me. Some things are either true or they are false, no matter what you may think about them, no matter what you may feel about them, no matter what you may believe about them. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those things. Either it happened or it didn't. He either rose from death and defeated death or he didn't. It's, it's, either, it's either true or it's, or it's not. And if it's not, if it's, if it's false, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then the Bible says we're wasting our time here today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul puts it pretty bluntly. He says, if Jesus, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied because we have based our lives on a lie. But if Jesus did rise from the grave, if it really did happen, oh my, what could that mean? What, what would that mean? And so I'd like to consider three questions this morning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Could it happen? Did it happen? And what if it did? Now, if you don't call yourself a Christian, these questions are intended for you to be sure. But if you do call yourself a Christian, they're intended for you just the same. Even if you're already a follower of Jesus, you need to contend with these questions too because, because I would say it's, it's irresponsible of you not to. You may not wrestle with the, the reality of the, of the resurrection, but your friends do and your neighbors do and your colleagues do and will. And so you and I, we need to be comfortable and, and conversant, so to speak, about the evidence and the credibility of, of the resurrection accounts because there, there is evidence. And that evidence is indeed credible. We do exercise faith as Christians. That's, 
that's to be sure, but it is, it is not a blind faith. It is not a, a leap of faith. It's a thinking faith. It's a reasoned and reasonable faith, and I hope to show you what I mean by that this morning. And so first, could it happen? Is it possible? Many people never get past this, this first question. They never get to the second or the third or the fourth questions about Jesus. And this means they don't ever actually get to the evidence because they get stuck on this first question. Could it be? Could this really happen? Many simply say, no, it, it couldn't, it can't, it's impossible. And so some, many, in fact, dismiss it before ever taking a closer look. Because surely we've moved past that sort of thinking, right? Many will say, we're, we're modern people now. We don't believe in the, the miracles. We don't believe in the supernatural. We believe, we believe in the science, many will say. And to that, I would say, me too. Let's talk about the science for a moment. And so as you get settled in for our time together this morning, let me unsettle things a bit with, with some science. Now, you may feel like you're sitting still right now in this moment, but it's, it's merely an illusion. The planet Earth where we find ourselves is spinning on an axis that we cannot see at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. And every 24 hours, like clockwork, planet Earth pulls off a celestial 360 around that invisible axis. Not only that, our planet and us too are hurtling through space, orbiting around our sun at 67,000 miles per hour in a universe that is expanding and, and, and always has been. That's not just faster than a speeding bullet, it's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. And so even on a day when you feel like you didn't get that much done, remember you did travel 1.6 million miles through space. These numbers are extremely difficult to get our minds around, and yet by all indications, they are per, uh, entirely and perfectly accurate. And get this, our, mil our single Milky Way galaxy, which is thought to contain billions of stars within it, is believed to be just one of a hun hundreds of billions of other galaxies like, just like ours, now believed to make up the, the universe as a whole. And so, friends, if these things are not miraculous, I do not know what is. And so how did this happen? How, how does this happen? Science says it all had a beginning. It says there was nothing, and then somehow there was something. It's called the Big Bang Theory. And the Bible agrees, right, that, that there was a beginning. It's, it also says there was nothing, and out of that nothing came something. And so if both agree that there was a beginning, who or what began it? The Bible says God did it on purpose and with purpose. Science says I'm not sure, it just happened by accident, without purpose or, or meaning. Whichever one of those two possibilities you believe, one thing is clear, whether, whether you're looking through a telescope, whether you're looking through a microscope, or whether you're looking into a mirror, we see in this creation around us an astonishing level of complexity and creativity and design. 
and here we are as, as human beings able to perceive and process it all, able, able to talk about it, able to see and to hear and to feel and to touch and to taste, able to experience love and laughter and, and life. The human brain is said to contain 100 billion microscopic neurons, each of those neurons having thousands of branches like on a tree, reaching out and touching the other branches of other neurons, giving rise to an estimated 500 trillion neural connections within our brains. And get this, a memory is essentially a pattern of connections between these different sets of, of neurons. And so every sensation that you remember Every thought that you think, every experience you have changes your brain by altering the connections within that neural network. And so by the time I get to the end of this sentence, as long as you haven't already tuned me out, you will have created a new memory that will have physically changed your brain as a result of what I'm saying and as a result of what you're thinking about what I'm saying. It's also been suggested that if we were to create a computer that mimicked the human brain in its complexity and its, its power, the amount of electricity that would be needed to run that computer would be similar to that which would be needed to run a small city in the middle of winter. And yet our three-pound human brains, in all their complexity, they, they hum along, running on the equivalent of 12 watts of power which is the same amount of energy needed to keep just a very small light bulb lit. I could keep going, but I don't have time. Incredible design, incredible complexity, incredible efficiency. And so I'd like to ask you to consider this morning, is this the work of an accident? Or is this the work of, of an artist? Is this the work of an author? Francis Crick, who was a guy who, scientist who won the Nobel Prize for identifying the three-dimensional structure of the DNA molecule, he, he calculated that the random, spontaneous assembly of even the simplest of, of biological molecules was a, a statistical impossibility. He said this, he said, quote, an honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Another scientist put it like this. He said that the probability of life as we know it coming about randomly by, by chance would be like a tornado moving through a junkyard and assembling from the metal scraps in that junkyard a, a Boeing 747 by chance. Or it would be like a, a blind person solving a Rubik's Cube, accidentally. Or it would be like an explosion at a printing press, randomly giving rise to a great work of literature. And so two possibilities. It all just happened randomly, uh, no meaning, no purpose. Or it's all on purpose and, and with purpose. And so where do you land today? And very importantly, which of those two possibilities would you say requires more, more faith to believe in? Could it happen? Could the resurrection have already happened? Or could it have really happened? I say look around at what's already happened. 
That helps give me my answer. Friends, I am convinced that it takes more faith to believe that everything as we know it is a random accident than to believe that there's an intelligent designer behind the design and an artist behind the artistry. And once you get there, once you can believe that's the case, if, if there's a God so powerful he can create life and sustain life, which is what the Bible teaches, why wouldn't that same God be able to restore and resurrect life if, if that's what he wanted to do? The historical resurrection of Jesus is not the type of claim that can be true for you, but, but not true for me. It either happened or it didn't, and there's no middle ground. Could it have happened? Look around at what's already happened. But did it happen? Did it? Did it happen? I think there are several compelling pieces of evidence in the gospel accounts that I want to suggest to you, suggest to you makes it not only plausible, but, but even probable that it, that it really did happen. Now, of course, this time of year, you often see secular articles and magazine covers about Easter and about Jesus asking questions about Jesus and, and the resurrection and giving, giving their, their, their answers, really. And most typ typically, the answers you see given are that Jesus was a good man, a, a wise man, an inspiring teacher of, of love and peace. He inspires millions to this very day, even. But those resurrection stories in the New Testament, they say, well, well, you know, those, those were really spun out of the, the early church much, much later. They were developed. They were, they were made up by the early church to bolster their story and some would say to bolster their power. Many will say that the Easter story is a warm and wonderful symbol of, of hope and renewal, but, renewal uh, but it didn't actually happen, right? It, it couldn't, couldn't happen, let's be real. And that's the picture that's painted, really, right there in, in Religion 101, in Philosophy 101, in the Da Vinci Code, all kind of wrapped up together. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if you're looking very carefully at, at Matthew's account of the resurrection, there's no way this story was made up. Because if it was made up, it never would have been made up like this, never. Matthew provides us with very strong evidence that, that what we're reading here are eyewitness accounts of, of what actually happened, and, and they were not some sort of later fabrications. So four things I'd like to draw out. First, who were the, who were the first people Jesus appeared to? You heard, you heard the, the passage there. He appeared to women first. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, and it says the other Mary. Jesus shows up and greets these two first, and it says, it says they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to these women, he said, he said, go and tell my brothers too. Jesus appeared to his sisters before he appeared to his brothers. Now you may say, so what? That doesn't prove anything. And you're right, it doesn't prove anything, but it does tell us, it does tell us a lot. The first eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in John, are women, and only women. Now, in those days, in that, the culture of that day, the status of women was, was low. It was, it was limited. It was a very paternalistic society. 
and women. They were not even full citizens, and their testimony was not even admissible in, in the courts. And so if you were making up this story, you would never do it like this because it would cripple your, your credibility. In his great book on the resurrection, N.T. Wright says this. He said, even if women were the first eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus, there would have been a very strong incentive on the parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John not to include that as part of their accounts if they wanted their accounts to be to be believable and believed. And so if the early church was trying to uh, come up with a story that would bolster the claim of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, they never in a million years would have, uh, would have made the, the first eyewitnesses women like they do here. And why would Matthew as well mention these women by name? Well, because the women were most likely still alive when Matthew when he wrote these words, he's saying, go ask them for yourselves. He's saying, they'll, they'll back me up. Now, the Apostle Paul does the same sort of thing. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Jesus not only appeared to these women, he not only appeared to the disciples, it says he appeared to over 500 people at, at the same time. And Paul says in the next breath, get this, I quote, most of them are still alive, he says. He says, don't just listen to me. He's saying, go talk to them. Ask them for yourself. And so Paul wouldn't have written that. And, and Matthew wouldn't have written this unless, the, unless they were true. Hundreds of witnesses to, to back them up. Go ask them for yourselves, they say. Now, both secular and Christian scholars agree that the New Testament documents they were written down in their present form within the lifetime of these people who had actually known and, and seen Jesus. Matthew was written 30 or 40 years after these events, and Paul was, was writing his within 15 or 20 years of these events. And now, so, so maybe, maybe you could make up a story like this and get away with it 100 years later or 150 years later, but you couldn't write it down 20 or 20 or 30 years later, when most of these people were still alive, they were still around, they would say, I never heard of that. that. That never happened. That kind of movement simply doesn't get off the ground. If Paul was lying, if Matthew was lying, the whole thing would have been exposed. The church would have never got off the ground unless these hundreds of people would confirm and, and could confirm that they actually saw the, the resurrected, risen Christ. Now, another piece of evidence, and another way we know that Matthew was writing, writing soon after these events, he talks about the fact that a particular story was in, in circulation. Remember what he said in verses 11 to 15. He said that the Jewish priests and the leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, were given some information by these Roman soldiers about the empty tomb. And it says these Jewish religious leaders bribed the soldiers with a, a large sum of money, it says in verse 12. And these religious leaders told the soldiers to begin saying something, to begin saying to anyone and everyone that the disciples stole the body. Verse 13, and it says the soldiers, they took this large sum of money and they did as they were instructed. This is actually pretty compelling evidence that the tomb was in fact empty on Easter Sunday. 
If you're going to develop a story, if you're going to fabricate a, a story to try to show the world that Jesus rose from the dead, why would you offer up an extremely plausible theory that is counter to yours and contradicts yours? Matthew never would have included this alternative explanation unless it was true that this story was, was being circulated. And the fact that this story was being circulated is very strong evidence that the tomb was indeed empty that, that day. Because if it wasn't, there, there would have been no need for the Jewish leaders to circulate this version of their events. Another thing Matthew gives us here, he says that uh, when the disciples encountered the risen Jesus, he says in verse 17 that uh, some worshipped him, but, but he also said some doubted. He said... Some of them had, had doubts about the resurrected Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Jesus appears to them. They can see him. They can hear him. They can touch him. And yet some doubt. Why would Matthew, why would Matthew mention that? If you were making this up, would you mention that some of the apostles, some of the very founders of the church, the writers of the New Testament doubted that Jesus had really risen? You'd, you'd probably leave that part out. I think the reason it says Jesus showed up and people continued to doubt was that Jesus showed up and people continued to doubt. There's no other reason that line would be in there. Some doubted, it says. That's real. That's how real life is. If the risen Christ appeared to you, are you sure that right away you would say, Lord, Lord, this is, this is wonderful? More likely you'd be saying, what is happening? What, what have I eaten? Wouldn't it be normal for some, some to doubt? These are normal people. And it's not fair to say that they were naive or gullible back then. Many, many say we're far more enlightened now, right? We're smarter, we're more advanced these days. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery, but it's not true. People's IQs have not gone higher as the centuries have gone on. There's no empirical evidence that we are any smarter than, than those people. And so let me ask you a question. Do you have any doubts that Jesus was raised from the dead? Are you skeptical? What kind of evidence would it take? How strong would the evidence have to be to address all of your doubts completely? They'd have to be pretty strong, yeah? These were normal people just like us. They had doubts just like us, which tells us that these, these people did receive the kind of evidence they needed, because look at what happens next, because the strongest evidence for the resurrection that Matthew gives us, that the New Testament gives us, and that church history shows us is, is what happens next. John Stott said this, he said, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. At the very end of this passage, Jesus tells these 11 men, he says, go into the world and make disciples. He says, baptize them and, and teach them about me. And it is a historical fact that that's exactly what they did. You've probably heard verse 19 before. It's a very famous verse. It's called the Great Commission. But have you ever realized what Jesus is saying in this very moment? He's saying to these 11 uneducated, marginal, nobodies from Judea. He's saying, you, you're going to go out there and you're going to change the world. 
and they do it. They, they pull it off. Historians have always scratched their heads about this. This very small group of people with no educational capital, no social capital, no financial capital, nothing. Within 200 years, Christianity swept the Roman Empire, and it has been on the move ever since. One historian at Yale University said something like this. He said, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or otherwise, without the aid of physical force, achieved so commanding a position in such a short time in such an important society. He's saying this is what happened is unprecedented. Without the aid of physical force, nothing has ever happened this fast. Nothing has ever moved this fast. Nothing has ever had this effect on people. Because Jesus does affect people in a remarkable way. Listen to what Napoleon Bonaparte said about Jesus. He said this. He said, Alexander the Great, Caesar Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. And die for him they did. Die for, them, die for him millions have. These first disciples, one by one, would would go on to face persecution. They would face stonings and beatings. They would face beheadings and death. And yet every single one of them insisted to their dying breath they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think one of those guys would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? Don't you think at least one of them, if it was all made up, would have said, just kidding, JK? But none of them did. Friends, some people will give their lives for what they believe is true, but, but where do you see people giving their lives for something they, they know to be false? They don't. You don't. Nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their final breaths that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is alive, and that Jesus is, is Lord. And 2,000 years later, nothing less than the power of the risen Christ could possibly continue to inspire Christians around the world to do that very thing. Jesus is risen. This is the thrilling message of Easter. One that can be persuasively established. And one that you can bet your life upon. Okay, so we talked about could it happen and, and did it happen. Let's talk about what if it did happen. What, is, what does it mean? What if the resurrection of Jesus is true objectively and, and historically? What does that mean? It, means? it means a lot. First of all, it means uh, the resurrection means that God has has come for you, that he's, he's come for me. It means your creator and your God. It means that he loves you. He loves me. 
In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent Jesus. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in his death and his burial and his resurrection should not perish but have eternal life. He loves you that much. He wants you. He welcomes you. He, he's inviting you into his family and he's saying it doesn't matter who you are. He's saying anybody can, can come on in if you'd like. Anybody. Remember how Jesus showed up to the women first? What kind of women were they? Well, Mary Magdalene was a woman with a past, a sordid past. She was a woman of scandal, some say. But that didn't seem to matter to Jesus. And remember, after showing up to these two women, Jesus said, go tell my brothers too. He's, he's excited to see his brothers too. And which, which brothers is he talking about? He's talking about the disciples who just three days earlier, were denying him and deserting him as, as, he hung on that, as he hung on that cross. They were scattering for their own safety. But that didn't seem to matter to Jesus either. What you see Jesus doing here with his resurrection, he begins dismantling the way the world divides people up. In the world, there are the haves and the have-nots. There are there are those who are in and those who are out. You have the somebodies and, and the nobodies. There are the influencers, and then there are the unnoticed and, and the overlooked. That's how the world tends to divide people up. Religion does it differently. Religion says, no, no, the important division is between the good people and, and the bad people. There are the moral people and, and the immoral people. There are the decent people, and there are those... Wretched, nasty people, thank you for not making me like them. Jesus doesn't divide people up in these ways. All across the New Testament, you see Jesus showing up to the outcasts and the outsiders, not to the insiders. He shows up to the women before the men, the poor before the rich, the bad before the good. He moves away from power. He moves away from influence. He moves away from those who think they're in charge. Why? Because he's blowing up the old divisions between somebodies and, and nobodies. He's saying, because of what I've done, anybody can, can come on in if, if you'd like. Everybody is welcome. And to be clear, it's not based on what you've done. It's based on what he's done. And Paul tells us what he's done in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. There is a sense in which Jesus became a nobody on Good Friday so that you and I could become a somebody on Easter Sunday. And so how does that work? How do you become a somebody before God? How do you take him up on his offer? Paul puts it very simply and succinctly in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says this, if you confess with your mouth, 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, so have you done that? If you haven't done that, I hope, I hope you'll do that today. He loves you. He, he wants you. He welcomes you. Now, another, another implication here of the resurrection is not only that he loves you, but, but also that he's, he's with you. God is with you. Look at what it says in verse 20, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And remember, he says, remember, Jesus says, remember, don't forget. Don't allow yourself to forget, I am with you. I am with you. How, how often? Always. He says, always. For how long? Forever, he says, to the end of the age. He is with you. He's, he's with me. He's with us. He's with you personally by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who he sends to anyone who confesses his name and, and believes in their heart. He's also with us collectively, I would say, right now in community. And here, here's why I say that. In verse 20, when Jesus says, I'm with you, that word you in the Greek is plural. In English, it doesn't really come off that way because in English, you singular and you plural, they're the, they're the same word, unless you're from the South. Southerners have a special way of saying you in the plural. They say y'all. And they think they've made an improvement to the English language. And, and maybe they have. But what Jesus is doing here, if you look at the Greek word, Jesus is using you in the plural. Southern style. He's not so much saying I'm with you. He's saying I'm with y'all. On the one hand, I think he's saying I'm, I'm present in the big C church as a whole. But I think he's also saying I'm present in particular Christian churches, just like ours, right now. I'm with y'all, he says. He's with us when we are together, and that's a beautiful thing, but there's also a sense in which we actually need to, to be together in order to, to know Jesus and to, to be with Jesus most fully. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Four Loves, and there's a chapter in there where he talks about two of his close friends. One, of them, one, one friend was named Charles, the other was Ronald. Ronald's actually J.R.R. Tolkien. And the three of them really enjoyed spending time together. But one of them died. Charles, Charles died and Lewis was, he was pretty broke up about it. It was hard on him. And interestingly, when his first friend died, Lewis assumed that he would have more of his second friend as a result, which he saw as a small sort of consolation. He thought he'd have more of his first friend now that the second friend was gone, but he found that actually not to be the case. Lewis realized that after his first friend died, he could no longer see certain things in his surviving second friend that only the first friend could really bring out of him. And so what he came to understand is that when he lost his first friend, he actually lost part of his second friend too, the part that only the first friend was able to draw out of him. And Lewis made this interesting observation. He said, uh, he said you, think you'd, you think you know someone, but you alone can never bring out all that is in that person. He said you need to experience that person around others, relating to others within a, a full community of people in order to see and to know that person most fully. 
And then Lewis turns this interesting corner here. He says, if this is true with knowing other human beings, how much more so when it comes to Jesus? And I think his point is this. You're never going to know Jesus as fully as you can just by relating to him on your own. You need to be deeply involved in community, walking with others, experiencing the ways in which others relate to Jesus too. Jesus is with us in community, and as we're together as community, we get to, we get to know more of him through, through one another. In community, we get to see things about Jesus through, through one another that we would not otherwise see or experience about him on our own. Finally, the resurrection means God not, God not only welcomes you, he not only is with you, but God is also for you. God is, God is for you. In verse 18, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, what he means is I'm in charge. I'm in charge of time and space and history. He says, he says I'm running things. And he says, not only am I here for you right now, I'll be with I'll be there for you all along the way, and I'll be there for you at the very end, it says, right? That's what he says, and that's a, that's a wonderful promise. He's saying when all is said and done at the very end of it all, at the end of your personal story, he says, I'll be there. I'll be there for you, waiting, waiting for you. I've got this, he says. I've got you. But he's also saying you're going to have to, have to trust me. Things are going to be different, and you'll need to trust me because sometimes... It's not always going to feel like I'm, I'm with you and, and for you. Sometimes you're going to feel crushed and defeated in this life, and so I need you to trust me. And so how do we do that? How, how do we trust him? Well, we, we, we return, I think, to, to the Easter story, to the story of, of Easter. Are you looking at anything in your life right now and saying, I can't believe this is happening God, where are you? God, don't you care? God, what good could possibly come of this? Consider those people who were standing there watching Christ as he was crucified. They were asking the very same questions, weren't they? God, where are you? God, what good could come of this? And look at what good came of this, when it looked like Jesus was utterly defeated and destroyed, God was, God was only getting started. Easter reminds us that sometimes in the darkest moments, the brightest light is, a, is about to shine. The cross looked like a dead end, but it wasn't. God flipped the script that first Easter Sunday, and he, he continues to do it to this day. He, he used the evil perpetrated against Jesus that day to accomplish the opposite of what that evil intended. That's how big he is. And if he can do that on a cosmic level, he can certainly do it on your, your personal level, too. Easter doesn't promise everything will be easy in this life, but it does promise that he's big enough to work it all out, to work it all together in surprising and unexpected ways for the ultimate good of those who love him. Easter means he loves you, he's with you, and he's for you. 
And it also means that in the end, all things, not some things, but all things are going to be made right. And all things are going to be made new. Happy Easter, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day and for all that it means to us and for us right now and in the future. Would the reality of the resurrection affect us this morning? Would it challenge and change us this morning? And would we respond rightly in worship this morning? Thank you, Jesus, that you would come for us in this remarkable way, that you would live and die and rise again for us so that we might too, so that we might rise too. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a moment in our gathering where we share in the Lord's Supper together. Um, and if you didn't receive the communion elements when you walked in, they should be out in the foyer. Maybe, oh, Emily's going to walk down the aisle here. So if, you'd like, if you're a follower of Jesus and you'd like to join us and participate in taking communion together, please take out your, your wafer and your juice. And this is just a time where we remember and reflect on the Easter story, on the, we, we consider the body of Christ given, the, the blood of Christ shed, but we also consider... Uh, that he didn't stay dead. He, he was dead and buried, but he didn't stay dead. We, considered, we consider the fact that he rose from the dead, and we consider the, what that means for us and, and for our futures as followers of Jesus. So please partake in the Lord's Supper at your own pace.